the fact that topics of wellness are being infused into our culture and how we're learning to and the vocabulary we're using to talk about life from all different angles is shifting the culture. Welcome back to the podcast. You're listening to Let It Out with me. I'm your host, Katie Dalebout. Today's is a long one, but it's a great one with Sahar. We met at the wing last spring and we recorded this conversation a couple of weeks ago in her beautiful Brooklyn apartment. And when I say beautiful, I mean there were essential oils diffusing, a beautiful blue couch. It was very cozy, well-designed, feng shuied. I loved being there. Sahar is one of the smartest, most fascinating people that I've met recently, and you'll hear all about her in this episode, but she was born to Pakistani immigrants in the San Francisco Bay Area, and then she attended business school at Wharton and initially attempted a traditional corporate job in marketing but then became a freelance photographer. And now she views herself as an interdisciplinarian, which we get into in this episode. And we also talk about leaving her corporate job, her transition to photography and learning a new skill and how she moved to New York City and became one of the best music photographers, I think, ever. And we talk a lot about family in this episode and how she navigated her strict immigrant parents and moving across the country. We talk about mental health, mental health stigma, specifically her depression and what helps her with that, including therapy and wellness and healing arts, as she calls them, including Qigong and just a lot of more things. I could have talked to her for even longer than we did, and I hope to have her back and get to talk to her about more things than we even got to in this episode. But stick around to the end of the episode for our LNL segment. And if you don't know what that is, even more reason to stick around. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy Sahar. This episode is brought to you in part by Altera Pure. Altera Pure is an organic bedding company. And let me tell you guys, listen, I have a little list that tells me which sponsor I'm going to be talking about for the episode. And today I sat down to record this and I thought to myself, I really hope I get to talk about Altera Pure because I just like them so much. I love their sheets. They're a 310 count thread count. That's what we're counting here in the sheets is I have no idea what that means. Okay. I have no idea what thread count means, but I know that this is a good one. But the reason I love these sheets, I've never really had nice sheets before. I just kind of had whatever hand-me-down sheets and they were fine. But whenever I go to sleep in my Altera Pure sheets, I feel like I'm in this luxurious hotel. It actually has made a difference. There are these cool, crisp sheets. I never get too hot. I never get too cold on them. And that's really saying something for me. But they have this farm to fabric 
business model that assures environmental and social sustainability through their deliberate design, organic verification, and their fair trade partnerships with co-ops. And I love this company. I love that they're dedicated to transparency and they share every detail of their product fabrication process and it just you know you feel good making a decision that's sustainable and with that you know I'll tell you this their product is just also really great and it's great to give this as gift maybe because you know you're supporting a farm to fabric as they say business model and if you already have your Altera Pure Sheets you can use the discount code which is for 15% off by using the code let it out at checkout for as many times as you want so if you already have your sheets you can still keep using the discount code which is for 15% off using the code let it out off your entire order that's 15% off using the code let it out I love Altera Pure I think these would make a great holiday gift and each purchase directly benefits the farmers that grew the cotton for the sheets so you can feel good about the purchase that you're making thank you Altera and thank you for supporting the sponsors Today's episode is brought to you in part by Cara Vitamins. Cara Vitamins, they're the best. I've been using them for a couple years. They were one of the first brands I partnered with on this podcast, and I love them. If you don't know what Cara Vitamins are, they are a monthly subscription vitamin service that takes the most effective quality ingredients, makes vitamins, and then sends you directly to your door these personalized packs in the most adorable packaging, and they're tailored to exactly what your body needs. How do they do that? It's actually pretty simple and cool and fun. You go to their website, you take this quick quiz, you know, just, I love a good quiz, like a personality type situation, except for your vitamin needs, just like you're doing something in Seventeen Magazine. In this quiz, it asks you questions about your diet and your lifestyle, how much you're sleeping, how much you're pooping. And from there, it takes this expert information and figures out exactly what supplements would be best for you. I'm taking a probiotic. I'm taking rhodiola for energy. It's just the best. I really, really love their product. I've been using it, like I said, for a really long time. And a really cool thing about them is that a portion of every sale goes to the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need with valuable prenatal vitamins. I love them so much. They even have an app where you can earn rewards when you remember to take your vitamins and it helps remind you to take your vitamins. It's, you know, I need that. So it's the best. I really, really love this company. And if you want to try them out, you can for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins by visiting takecareof.com and enter the code Katie at checkout for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. Visit takecareof.com and enter the code Katie. That's my name. K-A-T-I-E at checkout for 25% off your first month. Thank you so much for doing this. I think you're so cool. And it was so fun to prepare for this and do a deep dive of your work and see all the cool things that you've been up to. And I'm so excited to talk about everything. So thanks for doing the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I was so excited from like Qigong to, you know, know. podcast. It was such a pleasant surprise to hear from you. Qigong with a broken arm. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it was like a few weeks after my arm was starting to be healed. I was like, I can go to Qigong. And then, and it was totally cool. You were so good about adjustments and it was just Thank fun you. to be around you because you have such a wealth of knowledge with that. I can tell. And, and with so many different things. And anyway, let's start at the beginning. You grew up in San Francisco in the Bay area and your parents are Pakistani immigrants, right? Yeah, so I didn't grow up in San Francisco okay. proper, but in the Bay Area in the suburbs, I was born in a town called Walnut Creek. And my parents are Pakistani immigrants. My dad did his undergrad and master's at Berkeley. And then um, my mom, once they got married, came over and joined him and they had me there. And then I grew up between the East and West Coast, actually, and eventually ended up back in the Bay Area where I completed middle school, high school, a couple years of community college. And then I did university in Philly and then went back to the Bay and then finally came to New York about eight years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. We got to, we got to dig into all of that. So what was your, do brothers and sisters? Yeah. One brother that's five years younger. Okay. What was your childhood like? What was your relationship with your sibling and your parents? What were you like as a kid? What did you want to be when you grew up as a kid? It was a friendly relationship growing up. I, I think we definitely butted heads in certain ways as any siblings would do, but I wasn't kind of, when, when you're younger, the five year gap seems wider, but even so he was always really mature and wise and I just loved the shit out of him. And so we would, I wouldn't be like, I'm older, so I can't hang out with you. Like, so we would, you know, we'd hang out and, and do whatever. And then, you know, over the years, our, our relationship has ebbed and flowed as we've both changed. So it's, it's gone through many evolutions and trials and, and continue, you know, we still continue to have some challenges that we work out, but as we grow, we get better at working through those. So that's kind of me and my brother. So back to your childhood. I was raised in a fairly conservative, traditional family. My parents, not only are they Pakistani immigrants, which, you know, one can potentially assume that you're coming from uh, again, a conservative traditional family, but even within Pakistani society itself, when you go back or when you talk to other Pakistani Americans, I've found that my family is on the conservative end of the spectrum, even there. So not only relative to Americans. So that's just to give a little bit of perspective on that. They're not the most conservative Pakistani parents I've met, but you know, they're up there. So with that, you know, I grew up with a lot of restrictions, like about being able to hang out with friends. I could only, in high school, I could only hang out with friends like once a month. Literally, I could go to one school dance a year. Boys weren't allowed to call the house. Um, <laughs> and, you know, just various restrictions on how I could dress and, and different things like that. And so, yeah, that in a nutshell was kind of the environment that I was raised in, also very traditional in the sense of really, really strong placement of value on education. My dad came here to be highly educated. He did Berkeley for his undergrad and master's and MIT for graduate school. So that's what, what was he studying? He studied civil engineering, so structural engineering for bachelor's and master's, and then he did an MBA at MIT. So they're like, yeah, you know, you have to just study really hard and you have to do like one of the holy trifecta of careers that you're allowed as, as a child of Pakistani immigrants, which is either like lawyer, doctor, or engineer. And then the stepchild to that, I say, is business. And so it was really like contained in what I could do. I was really into the arts growing up, which 
my parents celebrated in a casual sense, like, oh, that's nice that you do that. Our daughter's so creative, but like, you can't make that your career. And then as I became older, I got really into dance and stuff. And my mom was like, you can like dance in dance class in school if you want to, but being a, you know, join a dance troupe or like becoming a performer, which is something I wanted to do. She's like, no, it's too provocative when women are moving their bodies like that. We're, we're more conservative and humble. And so what I wanted to be when I grew up, people always told me that I'd be good as a, a lawyer because I was very opinionated and very good at backing up my arguments and just very thoughtful in that way. You're very articulate. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, you're really persuasive. And so I was really into the idea of that, I think, in my preteens and maybe teens. But then the idea of like burying my head in a book was overwhelming or books for a long, long time was overwhelming. You eventually go to Wharton for university, but you said that you went back and forth from the East Coast and community college for a little bit. So get us up to that point and what was college like for you? Yeah. So to add a little bit more context to where I lived. So I was born in the Bay. I lived there until I was almost six. Then I lived in Pakistan actually for five, six months with my mom and my brother. It was a supposed to be a long vacation in between like over the summer that my mom ended up extending because she got homesick and was thinking about actually moving us back to Pakistan. So I got enrolled first into a first or second grade class in Pakistan. And that was a really interesting cultural do you remember? experience. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember it now? How old? You said five? It was first or second grade. So I was like six or okay. seven. That's like old yeah. enough to I have to a remember. couple like distinct memories yeah. from it. I did enjoy my my time in that school the little time I was there. So that was while my dad was getting settled into graduate school at MIT. And so then ultimately my mom was like, okay, we'll, we'll move back to the U.S. And so then we moved into graduate student housing with my dad and MIT. We were there for a few years. Then we were in D.C. Then we were in SoCal, Irvine, and Costa Mesa for a couple of years. Then the summer before, I think seventh grade, moved back to the Bay, did middle school, high school, two years of community college there. Then I applied as a transfer student to Wharton and I went to Wharton for three years. So I took a fifth year because I I was on a scholarship and not merit-based. And that's a whole other story. But I I happened to be the right place at the right time and, and got a really incredible full ride that I was able to use at Wharton. And so I was like, oh, they they will give me some extra time here. I can just like take some more fun classes and hang out. So I took a fifth year. So, what were you studying there? So I was at Wharton with a concentration in marketing. So that was your way of kind of doing something that appeased your parents, but kind of hit some of your notes creatively? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, there's yeah little twists and turns in between. So my mom was initially kind of grooming me to be a computer programmer. So I started out as a computer science major at the community college and and I was just like in over my head with that. I was doing really well at community college courses and I was good at programming too. And then just one day I told my mom, I was like, hey, because she basically wanted me to become a programmer, do that for a few years and then go into like tech management. So to be like a C-suite executive in tech. And I was always into marketing because my dad's MBA, his concentrations at Sloan at MIT were finance and marketing. So he was the first person that kind of seeded for me. I was like, what? Are, I was like six years old and like, what are you doing, dad? And he was like, I'm, I'm studying marketing and this is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I'm really into entrepreneurship. And I was like, cool. 
And so I just, I told my mom and I want to do business. And she was like, get the tech background and then you can become like a tech executive. And I was cool with it for a while. And then I was like, no, I just, I can't see myself like thugging out in front of a computer for a few years. Like I just can't, I need to do something more creative and be around people. I wanted to do like strategy and marketing, uh, creative and marketing. So yeah. So then they said, okay. And then they were just like, you have to get into a really good school. And I thankfully got into Wharton and yeah, I studied marketing there with the intention to do strategy and creative in marketing. And then eventually that's, that's what you did. You worked in corporate marketing for a few years. But it wasn't at all what I had planned yeah. for it to be. When did you know that it wasn't right? What was that experience like for you? So going back to me being raised in a very traditional family, my dream with marketing was like, working on ad campaigns or yeah, effectively on on, more on the advertising end. And if not on the advertising and again, marketing, creative and strategy. So really being in a room, coming up with ideas, coming up with, you know, strategic plans, maybe not physically being the one creating the creative, you know, being the graphic designer or whatever, but being the person concepting things and ideating things. And I felt like I would have been really good at that. And I still do. And I was really interested in media and art and things. So I I wanted to either work in like magazines or music or something like that. That was like the ideal thing or agency. Those were the three. And that's all in New York. And my very traditional parents were like, you can't live on your own until you get married. And I wasn't in any rush to get married. So I was like, I'm not going to get married just so I can like not be, you know, where my parents are. And so it really took a lot in me. I had a lot of nervous, spontaneous, like mini nervous breakdowns in college. You know, it was my first time really stepping into my own identity away from kind of the hovering of my parents, well-intentioned as it was. And, you know, I I got to explore more my value system and, and just how I wanted to live my life. And that was a concession. I was realizing that I, with graduation would come a regression of sorts of having to move back into my parents' home, change my lifestyle again, and also kind of acquiesce to whatever opportunities and lifestyle I could get in the Bay Area. And so I, to avoid drama, I moved back after graduation and I tried to get some creative jobs and I had a couple opportunities, but they just paid almost nothing, you know, really entry-level creative marketing jobs don't pay that well. And it wasn't stuff that I was super excited about anyway. And then I was interviewing with Google, but they have just like an epically long interview process and it was going well, but I was just like, this is going to take several more months. And so I just kind of went for literally the place that would pay me the most money my mom was like, oh, Williams-Sonoma is a big company out here. And I didn't know what it was. They're the company that owns Pottery Barn and West Elm and all of that. They have about, as the time that I was there, I think about six brands underneath their umbrella. So I was like, whatever. And I applied and it was a marketing analytics job. So I accepted that offer. And the day before the job started, my mom asked me if I was excited for my new job. And I was like, no, it's just a paycheck. Like that's how I always felt about it. So that was four years of my life and it, it sucked. And they put me through this review process at the end of the four years because I wasn't hitting the marks they wanted me to hit every year. We had like twice a year reviews and every one of those reviews, I got satisfactory marks per their rating system. 
in their employee handbook, there were specific marks that you could get, like not meeting expectations, but automatically, if you got that two or three times in a row, would trigger a performance review. But I never got one not meeting expectations. I got, you're doing everything, you know, well, it would be nice if you took more initiative. That's what they'd always say. I'm like, well, if you're not like triggering anything, like I don't, I don't really care about this job, right. so whatever. Right. Two years into my four years there, it was really the height of the recession and they laid off 20% of the company, including people that have been there 10, 20 years and really oh loved the job and lived oh. for the job. And so I was like, if they're still keeping me on now, like yeah. I know that I'm generally like a high performer maybe my slacking is enough for them because they clearly still need me. You know, like maybe even though I'm slacking, like they're getting what they need. Mm -hmm. And so I really had no reason to believe that anything was going to happen. So four years in when they triggered the review, not off of any bad marks or whatever, there was just something happened and they were like, okay, we, we have to put you on a disciplinary performance review. They said, you know, we're only doing it just to help you improve your performance. This is just like standard procedure. And it can result in termination, but that's not where we're trying to go. And I believe them. But very quickly, it became clear that it was just HR trying to create a paper trail. And no matter what I did, I was going to be fucked. And so it was, it was an extremely traumatic experience and I ultimately got fired. And it's like, I kind of knew it was a three month long process. And about halfway through, I knew. So it was for a couple months, I, I knew I was going to be fired. And it was but I had to hold on to the job because I couldn't afford to quit. I needed unemployment. Mm -hmm. And so it was, yeah, it was horrible. But because I saw it coming, I was able to prepare for it. So when the day that the firing came, you know, everybody else was kind of all twisted up and looking down and sheepish, you know, in HR, my, my supervisor couldn't even look me in the eye. I already had my ship moved out the day before because I didn't want to deal with the humiliation of going back to my desk. I had my backpack with me already in the conference room. And so I handed them my badge and I said, I don't know what I, I don't remember what I said, but I was like, I'm out, I'm good. And I walked straight out to my car and yelled or screamed at the top of my lungs out of sheer joy. Like they would, like, it felt like a movie. It was one of the best days of my life. Wow. What did you do after that? Do not remember. I probably, I probably went and like ate something or like took a nap. I don't know. Like I, it wasn't anything celebrating yeah anything too big like I just remember that moment in the car like the feeling the feeling was worth it I think probably a couple days after that I flew to New York because I knew it was coming to an end so I had lined up an interview in New York for email marketing actually because I was like I need money yeah that didn't work out and then I ended up moving back to my parents house in the suburbs gave up my apartment in San Francisco saved up some money and six months later moved here to New York to pursue photography was there part of you that was It all, I'm sure in retrospect, you know, it's easier to do this, but when that terrible six month process of being fired from this job, but you didn't even like it, were you grateful at all of like it pushing you to end something that would have been challenging for you to quit? Oh, absolutely. Without a question. I remember I would use the phrase like, you know, people say a blessing in disguise or whatever. Yeah. I was like, this was not a blessing in disguise. This is a blessing in plain sight. Like, I know the universe facilitated the shit out of this one. Yeah. And I see it. Like, I don't need, like, there's no disguise. Like, I would have been at this job forever if I wasn't pushed out of it because I had a really hard time and I'm still working through being able to save money. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I had been trying to save money because I had picked up photography two years into the four years there too. And I was kind of moonlighting on the side, playing with that. I had always wanted to have my own business. I just couldn't figure out in what. 
And then photography felt like it could be promising for entrepreneurship. And I was like, Hey, I'm going to save a bunch of money and then I'm going to quit. And I, I just kept not quite getting there. And it was also, you know, a recession. So I tried looking at, you know, different points over those four years for other day jobs in marketing just wasn't making any right hits there either. And so it was absolutely what needed to happen. And me not getting the gig here in New York, it was email marketing, but it was for a, a record label. It was for downtown records that had a lot of really cool artists on on their roster. And I was so excited. I'm like, oh my God, it's like email marketing, but I can work in the music industry. And oh my God, it's so cool. And then I can like afford to, you know, subsidize my move to New York and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, but that was me still going, you know, the security route, the way that I was raised yeah. and just conditioned. And yeah, that didn't happen. And that didn't happen for reason either. I was supposed to really just dive straight into the unknown with photography and entrepreneurship. Yeah. I relate to a lot of that in my own way, in my own family situation of the, not in the exact same way, but just in the way of it being a different generation and always wanting to be an entrepreneur, but not having any models for that. And just seeing, hearing, you know, when I grew up and then after college, you have to have a full-time job with benefits and a 401k and support yourself. And that's just what you do. And that's just what I saw modeled. I didn't see that there was a way to not do that. It took me six years at, at the wrong job or a job to do that. So what was communicating to your parents, the termination and then eventually moving to New York? And I know you said they weren't cool with you living on your own without being married. So how did you handle doing that and then moving here? I had told them a few times, I think over the time that I was at Penn, that I wanted to live on my own over the summers, I'd come home and, and it would just be a huge blowout. And, you know, it was just kind of like over their dead body type of thing, which just culturally wasn't accepted. I'm the eldest cousin on both sides of my family. My parents were the eldest siblings on both sides of the family too. So then my brother's the second oldest. And so to be the eldest out of an entire generation of, or like not generation, an entire you know, yeah. set of cousins and to be a woman on top of that and you know in a traditionally conservative culture it's like you can you can kind of put two and two together of well your older cousin did it or yeah I was I was the person my parents were the first out of all of their siblings to migrate out of Pakistan to a western nation at that to any nation but a western nation and to raise children there. I mean, they were really breaking the mold and they were yeah. doing their very best. And, you know, in doing their very best, all I really knew for the large part, even though I was raised to know my culture to a degree and went back to Pakistan on occasion, as far as I was concerned, I was more American, you know, than I was Pakistani. But as far as my dad was concerned, he's like, you're not American, you're Pakistani, you're Pakistani. And it was just in our culture, it's kind of like, girls, women, they they don't move out until they're married. So it just was no way going to go. There were all these blowouts when I brought it up over the years. And and then I had those breakdowns in college where I was just like, I'm going to completely just have to forsake these these evolutions that I've made and in, in my values and, and how I want to live my life to kind of abide by my parents. And so I made the decision to move back home. And I said, I will... <laughs> 
follow their rule for as long as I can stand it. And when I can't stand it anymore, it just, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And so I moved back in that summer that I graduated, we had the last blowout and my dad was like, never bring this up again. And, and the threat was that we'll cut you off if you move out. Cutting off like really emotionally more so was the important part. So it was, it was a bit, and he was just like, this conversation is over forever. Like never bring it up again. And so at that point I knew I was like, the next time I bring this up, that's going to be the last time. And that, and I'm not going to have any outs. Like I have to, it's going to happen no matter what he or anyone else does. And I have to be prepared for that finality. And so I had given myself maybe a year or something. I was like, save up some money, whatever. And then I'm going to put my foot down and it's going to happen no matter what. And so I was going through some personal, like emotional issues. And I, I was just frustrated from the long commute and being tired all the time and wanting my space and crying more from that. And then I came home with like puffy eyes and whatever. And, you know, looking like I'd been crying my face off. And so my mom asked what was wrong. And I, I there was not a thought. It was li- it, like something literally possessed me and was like blurted out. I need to move out. And I was like, you know, it was like, now it's not, I'm about six months early, <laughs> you know? And um, I was like, all right, I guess it's happening. And it was pretty, one of the most challenging times of my life. It was a huge blowout. And my parents said some pretty hurtful things in pretty aggressive ways. And I was really trying to, I was trying to be as respectful as possible while while at the same time putting my foot down. And again, in our culture, that's not a thing. You know, my dad would always be like, respect is deference, meaning like you do what we say, you know? So for me to say what I'm doing and not ask what I'm doing, that was a whole thing in our family. That was in itself inherently disrespect. So how do I do something that is inherently disrespectful and as respectful as the way possible? And so that's what I was trying to do. So I was speaking to them with a level tone the other thing that had happened is I had spent years crying about it. So it was kind of like I was all cried out about it. And I was like, I knew I had to have a certain level of stoicism in order to withstand the emotional, severe emotional challenge of not only going through the labor of coming to the end of this and getting what I wanted, but then also being able to withstand potentially being cut off from my family. So I had to be stoic to a degree. So it was very level. I was fairly, I guess, stoic, which was upsetting for them and just kept, you know, paraphrasing in as many ways as I could what I wanted and why I wanted it. And I just kept being met with just like being told off and all this aggression and, you know, verbal abuse, so to speak. And so that was why I even mentioned that because it's like, obviously it's not fun to talk about my parents in that way is it was a really pivotal point. I was like, why are they acting like babies? Like, why are my parents acting like children what the fuck like they're the adults you know and it was a really pivotal turning point for me in realizing the those moments that you have realizing the humanity of your parents and being the oldest child for me i was like oh shit like this is their first time doing this as parents so at this juncture in parenting they are children at this thing in parenting they're at babies at this thing that's happening so they're acting like babies got it you know and it allowed me to have more more sympathy for them and so that was a really humbling moment because 
being raised with strict parents where it's like literally my whole relationship, not my whole, a big part of my relationship with my parents was like rules, rules, rules. Can't do this. Can't do that. Okay. We're Muslim. Okay. We're Pakistani. That means a bunch of rules. That's like all I felt. That's what was my relationship to my culture and religion for a long time. And I was raised in a very like hierarchical parent-child dynamic. And it allowed that to dissolve for a moment to just see them as human beings. And so I was getting kicked out of my house. Um, my, my dad said I had, like 24, 48 hours to just like get my shit out and get out. I was throwing myself in like black garbage bags, completely in like trauma, like, you know, like mm, disoriented, yeah. like didn't know what I was doing. Everything was like dream sequence, weird shit. And just called up a fr- couple friends. I'm like, hey, can I rent an extra garage space at your apartment complex? Hey, you have a huge ass living room. Can I drop off garbage bags? They'll be there for a couple weeks until I find a place. Thankfully, found some friends that said, yeah, was driving back and forth to San Francisco with these garbage bags from the suburbs. And, you know, they saw that I was really serious. And my mom, she was just like, and I had started looking for apartments. And my mom was just like, can you just hold off for a second? Can you just hold off for like a couple weeks and just talk to your dad some more? I'm like, I've said it 5,000 billion different ways. Like, how else can I say it? And I'm still going to get told off. And I'm kind of, I'm feeling pretty wary from all of that. And she convinced me somehow. And um, some at some point within that couple week span, I reapproached him and and in that moment, I realized that how she, she said he's angry, but he's all, that was the thing that convinced me. She was like, he's angry, but he's also hurt. And that was the first time hurt came into the play because it was all anger, 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 no breathing, anger, anger, anger. <laughs> so all it was. And I was like, oh, okay, there's something else here that I can work with now. And so when she told me that, I think that that also gave me a perspective to step back and be like, okay, as a defense mechanism, I have um, had to take on the stoicism as a survival mechanism, literally. And, um, but that is making them think that I don't care potentially. Right. And so I was like, I'm kind of all cried out about it and I don't have tears left, but perhaps I can, it's a little odd to say, but conjure something, you know, conjure some emotion. And it's not that it was false emotion but it's something that i i had to conjure because it was something that was a period or a phase that i had been done with in the trajectory of that story and so i presented my case to him again and i felt like okay he feels disrespected that i'm telling him so let me just for the purpose of ceremony almost ask him so i started crying and i said consciously crying and it wasn't fake crying again, but conjured and crying and saying, I love you. This isn't personal. Can I please move out? I really need this for me. You gave him what he needed to get what you needed. Yeah. And, but I didn't even know that that would be an in or a possibility until my mom said, hold on. Maybe there's a possibility. P.S. He's also hurt. Cause that he had in a certain way, maybe too much pride or I don't know what it was to even show the hurt part. Like I didn't even know that could come up. Or you couldn't see it because you see, you saw your dad at that time in a very specific way to even know what hurt looks like on him. You maybe didn't even know. And she knew him in a different way as more of a peer when you just saw him as this. Totally. That's a really good point too. And so then after that, he broke down crying and he said, I just want you to be happy. And I swear to God, like, I was 
wow, how old was I at that point? Probably mid twenties. And I would have never, it, it was literally a miracle. I would have never seen my dad as I had known him in my 20 ish years of life at that point do that or say that in regards to that or that type of topic, yeah, you know, or to respond in that way where the child had so severely defied the parent and then acquiesce to the, the child's basically demand with tears saying, I want you to be happy. Like it was, it was humbling. And so my mom was like, can you live with us for, I don't know, a couple more months just so your dad can like wrap his head around this transition. And that was really scary for me. Cause I'm like, what if I have to go through this again? And she convinced me. And so couple months in I it was hard for me again I was like okay dad I, I think I'm gonna it's time I'm gonna start looking are you okay and he said okay and then I moved with his blessing to San Francisco so that's how that part happened wow yeah what it, it's so interesting to see our parents as people and yeah. especially as we grow up I think that's such a I come from a different background but we still can relate to that story I think it's so I'm, I'm glad you told it I'm glad that you told it. So what's going on with your mental health during that time? And then the transition to moving to New York across the country from your parents, was that another tumultuous conversation moving to, you've already moved out, but moving to a different coast. And then not only that, but moving without a job and going into being an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I think that it's fitting that I ended up kind of drawing out and adding color to what I just shared because that is hands down one of the most pivotal points in my life, if not in certain respects, still the most pivotal point of my life. Today, I'm 35 now because it, it, it changed the entire trajectory of my life in many ways to individuate because that's what it was about too, individuating from my parents and setting boundaries and being like, I'm going to live my life on my terms. And it's not like everything, you know, it's just like changed, but a lot did, you know what I mean? Materially. So that then spilled over into how the New York thing went. And so for a few years, I had been telling my mom, hey, I think what, even while I had that day job, I think I want to move to New York. I want to try living in another place. And, and I feel called to New York. And she, you know, just kept saying that I don't feel like... <laughs> I had, there was a certain point in time, like when I was really young, I resented the traditions and the conservatism I was raised within. Then for late high school and the first two years of community college, I actually became pretty religious. And I started praying five times a day and going to like youth study groups and things like that, Muslim study groups and going to different lectures and things like that. And then I went to college and had, you know, a different worldview and perspective offered to me and then shifted again, but yet to another place. But that place did move me away from Islam and did move me to a bit more of a, a liberal place in terms of just how I was living my life. When I say conservatism and liberalism, I'm more so just talking about lifestyle, if, if that makes sense. So my mom had noticed that post undergrad and she was just like, no, like you're not Muslim enough. I feel like you're too susceptible to like American influence and we want you, you know, to be like a solid Muslim and your values and 
if you move away, like, I just feel like you'll be too far gone. And so that was kind of her thing. And so that happened for a few years. And that conversation continued when I was living on my own as well. And then I lost my job and my parents knew about the, they were with me for the whole ride of that three month long review process and how traumatic it was. And they knew how much, how much I was busting my ass trying to do a good job there. And it was just kind of like a setup and they knew I'd been doing photography on the side. And at that point I, I was like, I hate having to, I've been asking for three years though. And I hate having to do the whole, I'm telling them thing especially my dad especially doesn't like it but then it finally came to a point where I was like all right guess this is gonna have to be a telling them thing too and so then I did I told my told my dad told my parents hey I'm moving to New York and my dad brought up he's like but with a different tone given now you know the history we had but still he was upset but not upset how he would have been it's like you don't tell you don't tell your parent you should ask them about like, I've been asking y'all for a minute <laughs> for years you know, and so I just, you know, old habits die hard and, you know, whatever. And so it was interesting. They were in denial about it is how that went. It was six months that I, I ended up moving back in with my parents, which was also really scary because it was like, shit, what if they don't let me leave again? Even though I'd been living in San Francisco for four or five years on my own at that point. But I decided to do it and I told them my plan. I'm saving for six months and I'm moving in May 2011. I, I gave myself a hard and fast deadline. May 2011, I am moving to New York. And they just acted like it wasn't happening. I'd be like, oh, like, I'm, you know, selling all my things to have more cushion for when I move to New York. They would literally act like I didn't say that thing. Like, they, they, I might as well have said, like, can I have a glass of water? And they, w- they would have responded in kind, being like, oh, yeah, so here's what I'm cooking for dinner today every single thing went like that, especially with my mom. And so then it was like, I don't know, it was maybe anywhere from two to four weeks out from my move. And I was just like flabbergasted and I sat them down or they were already sitting, whatever. And I sat down with them and I was just like, I started crying and legitimately, or I I don't know, like maybe these people just need crying and feelings. I don't know. I don't remember how, like what the, like exactly how it went down. But I think I started crying and I was just like, listen, like I'm going to be moving in a few weeks. And if y'all keep acting like it's not happening, literally just one day I'm going to be gone. And we wouldn't have even said bye. Like, I'm going to miss you guys. You know that, right? Like I, I'm excited to be moving, but I want you to be part of it. And I still, I'm going to miss you. And I still love you. And and they and they finally were like, okay. It was so weird. And then they acknowledged my move. And then when my dad was driving, dad and mom were driving me to the airport. My dad has had his own set of challenges with entrepreneurship. Uh, he ended up not becoming an entrepreneur. You know, I think he has his own fears and baggage with that. So I think it was coming from a good place. But it was very traumatic to hear. He basically was like, you're still young right now. And you can tell me when I'm right later. And he always says stuff like to that effect or doesn't anymore actually, but he did for a long time. So he said something like that and was like, you're going to New York and you're trying to be like, start your own business on top of that. Like trying to be an artist, like artists make no money. Like in so many words, he was like, holler at me when you fail. And I'll be like, I told you so, but you're young and you need to learn this. 
So, but I'm right. And I was like, damn, you're going to say this to me on the way to the airport? Come on, man. Come on. And it wasn't, again, coming from a malicious way. It was just coming from, like, some sort of protective, weird, tough love something. That's all his... He didn't have any examples of that working out. So he just assumed that it wouldn't he wanted you to be safe. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I went to New York with. And so for the first, I don't remember how long at this point, I've been here for almost eight years. First couple-ish few years, I wouldn't tell my dad really anything I was doing with my work. We would just, whenever we'd talk, we'd talk about other stuff. Maybe once in a blue moon, I'd mention my work. My mom was really supportive. She was the one that actually even told me not to go for that email marketing job at downtown records. She was just like, that was a super traumatic firing process for you. You hated that job. Just like fucking go to New York, stop being bougie, be broke for a while and like do this entrepreneur thing. Great. Just try and like, she wouldn't have, yeah. Yeah. So awesome. She wouldn't have normally done that, but she saw how much pain I went through. So that was really nice to at least have that. So I would share, you know, my journey with my mom and throughout back then. And even now my parents were and do get, worried about the instability that comes with not only being an entrepreneur or a freelancer, but a creative at that. It's very, very challenging. But I will say that after a couple years or so, and increasingly more and more with time as my dad saw my successes, I do tell him about my work, you know, now and then when I feel like it, because I don't always don't want to talk about work either. Parents are always like, are you okay? How's it going? Da, da, da. You know, so he, you know, he has come around to even say he's proud of me and all these different things. So there's been beautiful growth and transition with that too. So when you came here, you were moving, which was new and you're starting this career in photography. And I think this might take us back to your time at the marketing job in San Francisco, but I heard you say something on Kat's podcast that really stuck with me, which was that you allowed yourself to follow your intuition and follow your pings and try things. And you tried things like acting and art. And I think you did improv and photography. Can you talk about how you found photography and and that that was something that you wanted to pursue? Yeah. So that set of events dates back to two years into my job at Williams-Sonoma. So circa 2008, maybe 2007, I just, I felt like I busted my ass to get really good grades and transfer to Wharton. Then I'm doing this job that I didn't like. And so at this point, you know, I was at Wharton for three years, into that job for two years. So it had been five years. Yeah, like five years since I had done anything that I was actually proud of or excited by or challenged by. And I was feeling a really deep void with that. And so that's what really prompted me to that combined with, I've always been really into music. So I had a lot of friends in the Bay Area that were musicians or worked in the music business. And just, you know, anyone that has peers that are musicians, especially working musicians, know that it's such a challenging industry to make a living in. And even that aside, there's just something that I think many musicians share in that they just live and breathe and eat and sleep that shit. And so to be around people that had an all-consuming passion like that, another impetus was I wanted to find my that. So I revisited a bunch of things I had done in childhood. I had drawn, sang, acted, danced, you know. But then I also always had a curiosity 
about photography and I had never taken a course and I had a friend that was a, a painter turned digital artist, like graphic designer and photographer. He just gotten a digital camera and he would come over to my apartment in San Francisco and I would tell him how I wanted to get my camera and he was like, get it, get it, get it, get it. And I bought it. It was the first thing I ever bought on credit. And I was just like, all right, I'm just going to dive in. And I started shooting. The first thing I shot was a concert on program mode. I didn't even know what shutter speed or aperture were. And so I started shooting shows of acquaintances and then they liked my work and people were really pretty enthusiastic about my work. I'm really self-critical. And if it wasn't for people's support, I probably would have moved on to yet the next thing. And I had a family friend that was, had moved from hard news, being a hard news journalist to doing more lifestyle stuff. NBC was launching their various regional lifestyle sites, such as NBCNewYork.com and NBCBayArea.com. And he had seen that I had been part of a couple group art shows that just happenstance a couple friends ended up putting on and inviting me to. So in my first six months of shooting, I was in a couple group art shows. And so he's like, yeah, I see you're shooting now. Do you want to shoot Tina Turner? And I was like, what? Uh, like a show. And I had on my to-do list, find a publication so I can shoot shows. Cause I had called live nation. I wanted to shoot a roots and Maxwell show that was coming up. And I was like, how do I get a press pass? And they're like, you have to be on assignment with a media outlet. And so I was like, in these next two weeks, I have to find a media outlet. Two weeks had passed and I was like, fuck, I didn't do it. And then this friend hits me up about Tina Turner. And I was like, yes, I'll do it. So I shot it. I didn't do as good of a job as I wanted to do, which is always the case for a Virgo. But he thought I did a really great job. And he was looking at other news outlets like the SF Chronicle, which is one of the big ones out there. And he was like, your photos are better than them. It was just me and an AP photographer. It was pretty bugged out. From there, I asked him if he would be willing to put me on assignment, like if I could request shows to him. And he said, yeah. And it just, he was so chill about it. He was just eventually after the first few, he was like, dude, just like put me on CC. Don't even ask to get on assignment. You're on assignment for whatever you want to be. Just say you're on assignment and put me on CC to the publicist or whomever you need to get the credentials from. So that's how I built up my music portfolio. And then that eventually transitioned to me shooting portraits and fashion. So you're really during the marketing job, we kind of glossed over this at Williams-Sonoma, you are learning photography, cultivating your craft and even getting paid for it at that time. So all the work that I did for NBC was unpaid. Okay. Yeah. It kind of sucked. Like there were a few- getting experience. Yeah. So much. Yeah. Overall, it was a golden ticket. It was a really great opportunity for me to really shoot whatever I wanted. Yeah. So when you came to New York, you had- a lot of experience, but you made and you had a lot of connections, but in San Francisco. So here you were kind of starting over with building a clientele, even though you had some experience. Yeah, it was interesting because I I did the freelance photography for a couple years in the Bay, but I literally it was like pretty sad for how much I shot, how little money I made. But I think it's a one, I was new at photography, I'll say that. Two, it is a fascinating thing, I think, how people if think feel like they can get away with either paying you less or not paying you at all if you have a day job because they're like oh she's just doing this for fun even though I was treating it like my business and I had business cards and a website and everything and so there was a lot of weird shit I faced in that regard I had a friend that would throw a really really popular monthly DJ dance party thing in Oakland and I did several sessions for them at their their parties 
And after maybe doing the first one or two, we had a chat about rates and I had laid down what I wanted my price to be. And I, I went to business school. So I'm just like, I'm not, and it's not only about going to business school. It's about my personality. I'm not, I'm not a complete anomaly, but like in a general sense, I'm a bit of an, an outlier in the artist world in that I'm not the common archetype of a aloof creative who doesn't really like doing business. You know what I mean? Like I, I combine the left and right sides of my brains and I'm comfortable with that. And a lot of really prolific artists, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. They just don't fucking like business. And I happen to be, I do like business and I'm pretty good at it. And in that sense, I will, I I don't have any issues advocating for my worth. And so I asked for whatever I thought that I deserved or was worth my time. And he got really upset and offended. This was a good friend of mine and was like, we could get like a photographer from the fader to do it for free. And then I'm just like, then why don't you get that motherfucker? Like, you know, I didn't say that, but it was just like, I was young at that point too. And yeah, so I dealt with some interesting things. So all of that to say, I didn't make much money at all. So I might've had connections, but I barely, barely put a dent in um, money that I was making in the Bay area. So it wasn't much of a difference at the end of the day between here or there in a sense. So when I came here, it was a blessing that even though it was scary that I didn't have a day job because I could then really fully break through that mental clutter or unfairness of, Oh, well she has a day job. So this is my livelihood. Pay me, you know? So I got to come here with that. I got to come here also with a portfolio and something to show for it. I got to come here with a client list or a publication list already that, so I had put in, you know, kind of paid my dues in the Bay, you could say in a sense. And so I came here with a, a fairly extensive network of acquaintances and a couple of good friends. So I didn't come here completely blind. And that's what I would say the foundation upon which I was able to build my work today in certain respects. Your career in photography has had, had so much success. And you spoke about this beautifully also on, on Kat's podcast about how you're grateful for that. And grateful that you've been able to make a profession out of something that you enjoy so much, but it's not exclusively all that you do. And you get your notes hit creatively through a lot of other things. You said that you view yourself as an interdisciplinarian. What does that term mean to you? And you know, how now do you, and I know you do a lot of things outside of photography and I want to talk about that, but how do you answer, you know, like the obligatory, what do you do question? If you meet someone, do you lead with photography? What do you, where do you go with that? Uh, Yeah. It's (laughs) that question is such a, I mean, like even when people ask me like the you know, podcast I did yesterday, they asked me to introduce myself. I'm like, Oh, I don't want to do it. Like, Cause it's like, it's a really challenging question for me over the last few years. And yeah, I've, me too. And what complicates it more is that professionally in terms of what is earning my income close to hundred percent, my career and my profession is photography. Right. But as of the last few years, I have really been diving into a spiritual existential passion oriented life purpose oriented, you know, inquiry of why am I here? What am I doing? What do I really want to do in photography to be completely honest? And I've probably said this on Kat's podcast night. I say it fairly openly. If the, if the topic comes up, it's not something I hide, but it's not something I wave around either because it's not necessary. But 
photography for me in a way partially was a means to an end photography was a means for me to become an entrepreneur and a freelancer and that is something that I have long been and still am passionate about photography itself at the time that I started and now at varying degrees also to be honest is something that I really really like and enjoy and I have moments of of loving it Um, but it has kind of never been my passion and I knew that and I was okay with that and I'm still okay with that because it is an incredible blessing to be able to work for myself it is an incredible blessing to be able to work for myself as a creative at that and with a creative activity that I do enjoy. No, I think that's great. I mean, I want to talk more about the things you do outside of photography. Let's talk about life purpose. And you say on your website that your yours is to create potent and inspiring medicine projects, initiatives, works, spaces, and movements to help elevate the way we exist as humans. I never read people's bios on this podcast or what they write on their websites, but that was so clearly articulated. Can you talk about how you came to that and how you help other people, how you would advise other people to figure out what their purpose is? Yeah, that's so fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, it's like you put stuff out into the world and then what this bio allows me is a couple things is... It allows me to set the tone and potentially guide the conversation about who it is that I want to be seen as, right? And what it is I think that I have to offer, even though there aren't very many physical project examples of that out in the world right now, or even though that's not what most people know me as right now professionally, right? So it allows me to say, hey, here are the things that that I also do if so inspired inquire and maybe I can, we can work on something that's not just photography because the thing is nowadays more and more people are moving towards being multi hyphenates. Mm -hmm. And I think with that, the creativity of those in hiring positions is also expanding to being able to connect the dots and say, like I've had meetings with a few people and they're like, I can tell that you're not, just a photographer. Do you want to do this project or let me keep you in mind for that thing? And so one, it's, it's a, a tool to be able to convey who I, who I feel I am and where I want to be going to invite opportunity. And it's also kind of a, you could take it as like a mantra isn't the right word, but like a personal declaration um, in terms of an affirmation almost, you know, to myself and in that to take it a step further and exercise in manifestation. Right. And so that exercise in manifestation can also be coming from multiple touch points. Again, one touch point being presenting yourself and how you're choosing to be seen. So from kind of a logical linear perspective, okay, people know that they can hire me for different things, presumably. And then also again, from the affirmation standpoint, manifesting from from the space of declaring that I am this, this is who I am. So I guess, you know, I would answer your question about how I would advise people that are finding their purpose or pivoting to just step into it. I still am figuring it out and it's been a pretty challenging and uncomfortable few years in the sense that I I had suspected that I'd be able to identify 
where I'm going next to put a definition on it and put a cute little box around it and then just do it. And it's been a much more prolonged process. And why it has been that is because it is inextricably tied to my personal growth process. That's the thing. Like when you're looking at purpose and and all of that, it is is tied to who you are. And in the last few years, who I am through the different kind of spiritual, energetic, metaphysical work that I've been doing, I have been unpacking, unearthing, killing and rebirthing a lot. And I don't, I still am in a lot of flux in terms of figuring out where, where I'm going to land. I'm in, in limbo in a lot of ways. So with that and realizing that I'm in sort of an extended years long limbo that still has some time to go, I decided to move maybe about a year, year and a half ago out of the intellectual and spiritual exploration into practice and action. And so now as much as possible, as much as my time and energy will allow, I try to continue the exploration experientially. So if I have time to do a passion project, even if it's just one in a year or um, a volunteer for something that will allow me space to explore something. So the Qigong um, workshop that we met at, I don't necessarily want to be a Qigong teacher, but I want to share that with my community. So as an opportunity to do that, I do want to explore holding space for community. So that was an opportunity for me to do that. I teach on a similar thread, um, donation-based Qigong classes at Heal House in Clinton Hill. And so again, that's a dual or even multi-purpose activity for me in serving the community and offering a community service for access to healing, which is something I'm very passionate about. People don't have a dime to spare. They can still come to my workshop. So that's one of the reasons, again, another one of the reasons is to to play with what it feels like to be facilitating and holding spaces, which I've done on and off over the years. Another example is last year, the Testimonies from the Table yeah. book project that I did. Which is so beautiful. Thank you. And people can download on your, on yep. your site, a digital version, yep. right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love if you could talk about that. Yeah. So that is probably the most emblematic of example of the intersection that I'm moving towards and endeavoring to play within. When you read that quote in my bio about creating works and spaces and movements and and things like that. It entails art, it entails media, entails culture, entails healing and social impact, not only from the nature of the project itself, but also what the project is inspired by and paying homage to, which is Solange's A Seat at the Table album, which I feel like really resides beautifully at that intersection as well. So what the project is, is it's effectively a kind of a scrapbook style physical book that was made by hand. It was from start to finish and um, it was delivered to Solange. And what the book comprises is testimonies from 61 Black women in America. So each woman has a page, a full page in the scrapbook, and it has two photos of the uh, each woman and two firsthand narrative testimonies. And so the pairings are broke at, broken out as one part is prompting them to share more about what how they view their challenges as a black woman in America. And then the other portion is inviting them to share how they view their healing as a black woman in America. So there is kind of this duality and how I creative directed it was to invite the women to 
share their testimonies in very brief kind of prose-like format. So there, there is a, a potency in the succinctness and kind of a striking feel to what's being said and then matching images, like I said. So the 61 women, all kinds of women, different ages and backgrounds and professions. I, I don't even know half of their like professions or anything like much about them at all. We got submissions through a Google form and really we got different demographic data to ensure diversity in the project, which I took into account. But then towards the end, I kind of threw it out the window because I didn't want to become too calculated about it. And I I ended up actually just meditating on most, if not all the submissions to decide on the final bunch. But the submissions also included actually their written prompts. And it was a it was a necessity because of the collapsed or the condensed timeline that we had, but it was a great way to really just see who felt like was the best fit for the project. So yeah, we gifted it to Solange and it was all shot and written and created in one day in my apartment. And it was a really beautiful energy and it is downloadable and available for free on my website. And I do have a prototype physical copy that I created from the PDF scans that eventually I will put up for sale just so it can be more of a coffee table conversation starter book for folks too. So cool. What a cool project. I want to talk about mental health and everything that you've been through with that and starting therapy and the ups and downs with, with your mental health. Can you talk about your depression and mental health and where you're at with that now? And was that your impetus to getting into wellness and the healing arts that you're into? Yeah. So I would definitely say that that my wellness journey was inspired by figuring out how to address my depression. I would say from ages roughly 15 to 25, I was, I don't know what the technical term for it would be, but how I've always put it is cyclically depressed. So I would be, you know, go through periods of being regular and then going through periods of just feeling down often, you know, quote unquote out of nowhere. And, you know, 15 to 25, it's like, that was like my whole adolescent young adult life. It was just, so I think it was confusing because it almost, I think it just became part of my identity. It did. And I think that that's something that, is really confusing for a lot of people that you just think that that's your your norm that you think that that's how life is and I think that that's very much how it was for me so I I didn't at that time from 15 through 25 I wasn't positive I wasn't sure that I was depressed I didn't call mm-hmm. it that at that time you didn't understand that term I didn't understand it for myself because I had some acquaintances that had said they had been depressed and in fact I had you know, close family members that had dealt with very serious depression. But I then my view on depression was, oh, it's this very serious, very obvious, specific thing that looks this one way. And you go, you know, on pharmaceuticals and you go to a psychiatrist and it's this mm. thing, you know, but it looks so many different ways. And, and it has a huge, you know, spectrum and varying degrees of severity, which the, also those degrees can ebb and flow with time and triggers it's it can be by you know neurochemical diet and like there's just so much trauma situational Mm -hmm. yeah and then from 25 to 27 I just plummeted and stayed there 
And so that's when the flag really went up. I would say by the time I was in college, I would say more so once I was in Penn. So I was at Penn and I think it was around that time and just after graduating. So kind of late teens through early twenties, I was asking people, are you depressed? Have you ever been depressed? Like I'm feeling like this, is that depression? How do I find out if I'm depressed? Like I was having those conversations, but I just, I honestly don't think that it was like an ego or a pride thing. Like I just think that I really couldn't shake or separate from the idea that if you were depressed, it had to be this big, huge thing. You know, like if it was this lingering sadness that went and came, but it wasn't debilitating, but it still was kind of like paralyzing, like maybe that's just my personality. Like, and so when I would talk to people about it, I still wouldn't fully feel convinced that I was actually depressed. So I was like, "Mm, maybe I'm not depressed, you know? So that 25, age 25 to 27 plummet was like, okay, maybe I need to pay attention because it was bad. I remember telling people that I am hard pressed to find being able to say that I was happy for even two days in a row. That would almost never happen if ever. It, like So that means a day being happy was a, a treat. And if it happened one day, it probably wasn't going to happen the next day. And I remember just feeling an extreme apathy or probably like vacillating or traversing between apathy and numbness, you know, and just nothingness, you know, like how my therapist often would put it just blah, blahness. I was not inspired by anything or anyone. I didn't get the point of life. Like, I remember really like thinking about, okay, what is there to like live for or be happy about? or like endeavor to care about. And I was completely disconnected from maybe slightly existentially even, you know, just everything seemed pointless and silly and uninspiring to me. I didn't get it. So obviously when you don't have anything to feel inspired by in life in that way, it's it's incredibly debilitating. I think that's a good way to put it. And I mean, what I'm describing, I think for a lot of people would easily point to suicidal ideation and i would say that the the thought over those years and many years crossed my mind but it was i don't think i ever took it that seriously and even the times that i took the thought a bit more seriously like it, it didn't ever really go too far and even now i mean to be fair like there are times where over the years after having gone through therapy and things like that that you know i have have had low points it's almost like a for me, my suicidal ideation has been more of like a existential thing, just like not wanting to like exist. And so that happened, but it wasn't a pre- like a prevalent thing per se during those two years in terms of severity. So what was more prevalent was just this debilitating, just apathy, blahness, and I was completely just withdrawn. What were things that really helped you pull out of that? I had a a roommate during a year of that time. And I think her just being there when I was just like feeling really sorry for myself and just completely lost. There was a certain comfort to that. I will say that it didn't solve the thing for me, but it it eased the blow if if I can put it that way. But what helped ultimately was when I, when I started therapy. So at 27, I was butting heads with my mom over yet another 
major thing that had come up in our family in in regards to me and my and my differing values. And so she was really stressed out about that. I kind of told her, I was like, listen, I can't even pay attention to what you need from me right now because I'm just hard pressed to care about life. Like I'm just, I just don't even care about life. So I kind of don't care about what you're saying, like status quo. So when I told her that I just started crying, I was like, I just, I don't know. I don't know about anything. And so I had kind of on and off over the years mentioned to her too, like, I think I might be depressed, maybe therapy. What do you think? And finally she was like, okay, yes, you should do therapy. And, you know, my family's not super well off. So we initially opted for someone that was on the cheaper side and I really didn't resonate with her. I went to like a trial session with her and I was complaining about how expensive therapy is on Facebook. And I had an acquaintance of mine comment on there and she said, you know, it really frustrates me that people have such high disregard for the value of therapy. We as a culture should be treating it just as we do um, physical medicine, like our mental health medicine is just as, if not more important, I'm going to DM you something. And so she sent me a private message on Facebook about her therapist And she said, this person literally saved my life. And she is one of the expensive therapists and you should still call her. So I called her and I had a 15 minute intro with her and she is Palestinian American and she was actually disowned by her parents. So she really, really understood where I was coming from. She also described to me her approach and she said, you know, I'm really into marrying psychotherapy with a more holistic approach. And that really resonated with me. And so I told my mom, I feel like this is the one I just know. And my mom initially said, no, she's like, we really can't afford it. And then I don't know, a couple days to a week later, she was like, no, this is your mental health. That's worth it. Like, let's do it. So they pitched in half and I pitched in half. And I was with that therapist for seven years um, up until about a year and a half ago. And after six months of meeting with her, and this was while I was still at my day job. So she was there through the firing, which is, was interesting. So was there a stigma with mental health in your family? And can you talk about that? Or it sounds like your mom was really supportive. Yeah. So because we had at that point in time, to my knowledge, you know, we had maybe like one or two family members with serious that had had or had serious mental health issues. And now I have come to find over the years that there are several people and maybe even more that I don't know about. So it was something that even at that time that my immediate family was forced to face and acknowledge that it's something that's real and that it exists. Mm -hmm. But that being said, I think that the cultural stigma of mental health issues and addressing mental health was invariably still there. It's like they both existed at once, which was really interesting. So I think that, you know, me talking to my mom about, hey, I might be depressed. Should I do therapy over, you know, the few years that I had been and her kind of being like, yeah, maybe no, like eh, it's expensive. Maybe you're fine. Like, I think that maybe subtly, like what took me so long to figure out that I was depressed and it required the plummet that I experienced because I was like conditioned to feel like it had to be this serious thing 
It was probably on a subconscious level coming from how my mom and my other family members felt about it and probably why my mom didn't take it seriously until I was damn near falling on the floor. So she was supportive when it became dire. And it's not that she wasn't supportive before, but the fascinating thing is though there was serious mental illness in my family and though there still is, it is still stigmatized and misunderstood. It was and it is as far as I'm concerned in my family. And so she supported it and I'm grateful. And so did my dad and everyone else. And, but yeah, there's, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done around that. I think, especially in communities of color and, but really overall with everyone. Mm -hmm. What do you think will help shift that and change that in immigrant communities and people with people of color in general? Hmm, I feel like just owning our truth as individuals, holding our ground if we're feeling a certain way. And again, stating our truth, to our family members, to people close to us. And if they don't get it, then letting them be and still doing what we need to do. I think that we are as a society doing a lot of what I think we should do now. Like in the last couple of years, mental health has become a much more popular hot topic and it's become and is becoming more interwoven into our normal vernacular and it is being infused into conversations and perspectives um, about a myriad of topics, therefore it being normalized, right? And I think that the fact that topics of wellness are being infused into our culture and how we're learning to, and the vocabulary we're using to talk about life from all different angles is shifting the culture. And I think that all the different op-eds that people are sharing about their individual experiences with mental health, all the things that are happening on social media in smaller and larger communities, all the different campaigns that are happening. I do think that it is massively shifting the culture. So again, being 35 years old and looking at peers, typically we find a lot on the internet. So on the internet, people that are in their 20s or even teens, the way and the extent to which I see younger people that are 5 to 10, 15 years younger than me talking about mental health, that was not happening when I was younger at all. Earlier and earlier ages that people are learning to seek out mental health. I started when I was 27, which is still actually considered early by certain standards for my generation or age group. Yeah. And especially in different areas, like here in New York, it's becoming something that people talk about and everybody has a therapist and it's normal. Where I grew up and even still, I didn't know what therapy was when I was a kid. I didn't Mm. know. I didn't know what depression was. I didn't know. I learned somewhat recently what anxiety was. Like I didn't know Mm. any of these terms. And what what stuck out to me, something you said about normalizing it is talking about it with your family and with people around you. Because it's funny, I talk about my mental health and I talk about my depression and anxiety and eating disorders and all of the things all over the internet, very public about it. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to talking about it with my family, Mm. I have all sorts of anxiety. And the only time I've ever talked about mental health with them was related to my eating disorder. And even that was viewed as like, well, that's a physical thing you just need to handle. You know, Mm. it was like a very like, well, that's just a 
problem of how much or how little you're eating. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. even viewed as mental health. So it's interesting of that creates change in communities that don't view mental health with the same reverence as it should be and needs to be. I think that's a really good point. And yeah, I, I really respect and honor you bringing up that vantage point because we all can so easily get caught up in looking at things through the lens of our privilege and, you know, and the things that I was naming that are creating change are creating change probably more in the coastal cities and in, you know, among certain groups of people that are consuming certain types of media. I will say that sharing with family and and people close to you, I do think is a valuable, potentially easy first step to create change and waves of change. But I will say that, I mean, just hearing what you're saying about, you know, how your your family responded to you sharing about your eating disorder and thinking about how much I actually do or do not talk to my own family about mental health and what responses I receive from people in my family. I think it's also very much okay to not talk to our families about mental health if we are someone that is dealing with and managing our own mental health challenges, because in fact, that can be triggering and isolating and bring us right back into the shit that we were trying to work through. Totally. Or what's the word? Gaslighting you essentially, or like making you think it's not. Yeah. And it can actually be a a hindrance Mm -hmm. to, to your work. And so in many ways, as much as I have grown with my family, one of the very first things I learned from my therapist, because she was very culturally tuned, right? To my reality she was like, sometimes omitting information or a white lie is kind of necessary for not only your self-preservation, but for the peace of that person. Your parents came up in a certain culture and certain things would require such a heavy duty rewiring of what their reality is that it's more painful than it's worth it than for you to share X, Y, Z with them. You know what I mean? I mean, this is now we're getting into other areas too, but to that point, she really, really taught me to pick and choose what's worth sharing and what's really going to have the most positive gain for everyone involved, not from like a transactional or entirely utilitarian standpoint, but a genuine wanting good for everyone standpoint. So I think that, you know, the middle ground for me there is to acknowledge to my family, like, hey, I've been depressed or, oh, hey, like, I mean, they know that, you know, and to not act like it's not there. But then another easy way to put it is just to meet people where they're at to Mm -hmm. a certain degree. If you're going to choose to talk about it, meet them where they're at. And if you're continually bumping heads with people again and again, then that's that's harmful ultimately. And, And there's not a point to it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I am so glad you had her and her and someone that you found that was so great. Me too. I have so much more I want to talk (laughs) about with you. I could talk to you for for a long time and I didn't even get to a lot of most of the questions I wanted to ask you. So we'll have to do this again. Sure. But let's do the rest kind of as as quick fire questions. So just stay, say kind of the first thing that comes to your mind. I know it's hard. We'll start out with some easy ones and then they get a bit harder, but... What's the best thing you've eaten in the last week? I made some broccoli yesterday. It was good. Broccoli stir fry. Amazing. <laughs> Great. Favorite part of your life right now? My home. Your home is beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. It feels good in here. So you teach Qigong and healing arts. 
could you briefly define Qigong for people and how that has helped you and some maybe some other healing arts that have helped you? Mm-hmm. So Qigong is similar to Tai Chi in a way. I describe it as it's an ancient Chinese energy healing modality and it's rooted in traditional Chinese medicine. So, and then traditional Chinese medicine, the foundation of that is based on the five-phase theory of the elements that they have. It's metal, water, wood, fire, and earth. And there's a natural flow to those elements as far as traditional Chinese medicine is concerned. So everything in, in TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, and in anything born out of that acupuncture, Tai Chi, Qigong, it's also all based on the flow of nature ultimately. So how... Qigong initially came about back in the day. I think it was passed down through family lineages and it was pretty secret. And over the years, it's, it's parts of it has mainstreamed and some of them came out to the West. So overall, it's just a set of different practices. There's actually thousands and thousands of Qigong forms. And the forms can include any variation of movement, sound, breath, visualization, maybe a couple other things that I might be missing. So they, the different practices can be geared towards different things. So for clearing energy, circulating energy, generating energy, balancing energy. So that's how I would describe Qigong. And then other modalities that I've learned and used from time to time as well include mindfulness meditation, EFT or tapping, breath work, essential oils, So one question I always ask on the podcast is what are your morning and evening routines? What are Mm -hmm. some things you do to start and end your day? What are some of your routines and habits and maybe what you're doing now, which I'm sure kind of is cyclical and changes. Maybe you could talk about some of those within that. So I try to listen to upbeat music to start the day and that really, really helps me out. Dancing around helps me out trying to eat something. I'm not the best with breakfast. If I do eat something, it does make a big difference. I normally make myself some avocado toast on gluten-free bread. I've played with doing practices in the morning, uh, like some sort of healing practice in the morning, but I tend to be slow to start my day. So I find that if I do those, then I get a really, really late start to my day. So I normally don't do those. But I found that for evening, doing Qigong consistently, even if it's 15 minutes each night, I usually endeavor when I am in the mode of doing it to do an hour to hour and a half. But the times in my life where I was doing more, no matter what, doing it every day, even if it meant 15 minutes and on a couple of days, even five, it was like revolutionary in how it changed my life. It's so cool. Yeah. You're so articulate and you speak with such confidence. What advice would you have for someone to to be more articulate? Is that something you've taught yourself or have you always been that way? So I'm super flattered by that because to be honest, one thing that I'm really self-conscious about is that I'm very verbose and long-winded. So when someone says that I'm articulate, I mean, to one end, it could be how I'm using my words, but then in my mind, I also look at being articulate as being succinct. And that's one thing that I work on. So I guess all that to say, I don't fully know what you mean when you say articulate. So I'm just going to take it as however it is that I communicate. Yeah. That's not something I really taught myself. It's just how I talk. So because I haven't really tried to make anything, it's just how I talk. I don't know if I could share how people can 
work towards it. What I'm working towards though is working more and more to find how to communicate what I'm saying in more succinct ways. Yeah. That's like a lifelong thing for me. Well, luckily I have a very long podcast. So this is working right now. Okay. Greatest lesson on creativity. Mm. Creativity is not something that you own and it's not something that you even create. It's not something that you create with your mind is in fact spirit moving through you or it's a, it's coming from your intuition and, and your higher self. It's something that moves through you. It's not something that you do. Mm. This is a good transition to the next question. Greatest lesson on God's spirituality. What do you think happens when we die? I've kind of always believed that everything is everything, that we're all just fragments of of one massive consciousness. And so in that sense, no one's lesser or greater. That being said, that there are higher and higher levels of vibration, but that we can all exist on. So, I mean, that's kind of how I look at existence and how I looked at it when I identified as Muslim and over the last couple of years, I don't really identify as Muslim, but, and so my spiritual path to now still kind of confirms that, but through different vernacular perspectives. So what happens when we die? I I think I'm still really figuring that out. And I feel drawn to maybe a couple different ideas of that. I was raised to believe in heaven and hell. I don't believe in that anymore. I believe in reincarnation. I think, you know, the idea of like when your your spirit has or soul has learned its lesson that there is, you move beyond incarnating into the earthly realm over and over again and you incarnate or your, your spirit is freed from a body and, and goes into some sort of other etheric realm and there's a whole bunch of other shit that's happening yeah. there and that's a whole other, you know, Podcast. set of things. <laughs> yeah, podcasts or yeah set of experiences. I guess that's what I believe. I yeah. don't know what that entails. You do a lot of things. You're an entrepreneur. What are your greatest lessons on entrepreneurship, productivity? How do you handle all of that? One of the first things that someone said to me when I was moving to New York to become a freelance photographer was she was a graphic designer that had been in and out of being freelance and having nine to fives. And she said, well, you still have your day-to-day structure left in you from a nine to five, hold that on Mm. and take it into your business. And I didn't. (laughs) And it's biting me in the ass now. So yeah, I would say one of my biggest lessons that I over and over try to re-implement into my life is having structure, any structure. I think that's the biggest lesson. Structure and in terms of how you set up your day structure, the structure also in having, even if you don't want to set very, very specific, precise goals, having some sort of general arc of what it is you're trying to do so that you have something to benchmark your productivity against structure. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I need that (laughs) myself. Okay. Second to last thing greatest lesson on family and also to tie everything we talked about today up into a bow. Where are you with the relationship with your parents and and your family as a whole? Yeah, we're all just human beings trying to figure it out. And I am reminded over and over again that despite my many challenges with my family and probably, you know, many times in my youth wishing I didn't have the family I had, that I actually... I'm incredibly fortunate to have such a loving and supporting family in a way that is truly a privilege, you know, that so many people don't have, you know, for all the bullshit, there's 
even what I call bullshit, it was all born of love. And so that's one big lesson I've learned. And we're just all trying in that even when you think that someone is unchangeable, if your heart is in the right place and you're able to operate from a place of courage and love simultaneously, just really magical transformation is possible. I've really, there are certain anecdotes that I didn't share, but there have been some really incredible milestones of things that my parents have said to me over the last several years that I would have never believed that they would say to me. My dad at this point is just like, I just want you to be happy. I just, whatever it is you want to do with your life, I just want you to soar. And my mom, as she's learned about my different values and over the years, she's, she's like, listen, like, I know that you thought that I judged you over the years and it's been, it's been really challenging for you and you've retreated because of that to self-protect. But like, even if I don't agree with some of your beliefs and values, I accept them in whichever way that I know how. And I want to be close to you no matter how it is that you choose to live your life. And hearing that level of profession of acceptance is just mind boggling for me in in the type of environment that I was raised in. And it's so humbling to see immigrant parents in a country that's, you know, more foreign to them, you know, than is to me. For me, it's all I know to be the ones to adjust to me. And it's like, I did. I had to do what I had to do, though it hurt my parents out of what I felt was survival. But at the end of the day, like, they're the ones that came around. And, and it's they're just, growing. You're, yeah. you're helping them to grow. Yeah. yeah. Really cool. Yeah. It's beautiful. Okay, this is really just a way to recommend things, but I frame it this way. You're trapped on a deserted island and you can bring with you one book, one movie, one TV show, one podcast, music, food, beauty item, even Mm -hmm. just telling us some of your, these can be all-time favorites or things you're really enjoying right now that you want to recommend, anything that you want to recommend. I was talking to someone the other day about needing to read up if there is actually something actually addictive about LaCroix because I always have it in my fridge and I ran out for like a week and I was really uncomfortable without it. So unfortunately, I would bring LaCroix. (laughs) I love that flavor too. She's drinking the berry flavor, which I also think is the best color. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. I would bring probably some essential oils. I typically just diffuse them. So just to help with my mood. And I would bring, I feel like there are a lot of books I'd bring, but the one that I'm looking at right now and the one that I feel like I really want to get back to reading because it did so much for me. And even the little bit that I read is the Tao Te Ching. And I'd bring some really nice face wash and moisturizer because it just makes me feel good when I wake up in the morning. I'm always shifting what I'm using, but I tend to use a brand called Metamore and E-T-A-M-O-U-R. And then I'm using another brand. I think it's called Defined. I might be totally wrong. It's a, it's a CBD brand and it has like a turquoise-ish colored tube bottle. And then movie or TV show or podcast that you want to recommend? Or I really love sci-fi. I, I watch a fair, I stream a fair amount of TV, sci-fi, and fantasy. And one of my favorite series of the last few years has been The The 100. 
It's about these 100 delinquents. Basically, like, there's Armageddon and the Earth is obliterated and there are generations of people that have been living in space and they send 100 youth delinquents down to Earth to see if it's habitable. Habitable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you say that word, and and all the adventures that they go through, and the people they run into there. Yeah. Thank you so much. The name of this podcast is "Let It Out." So, did I ring you dry for? Did you let out <laughs> all of your wisdom? Is there anything else that you wish that I would have asked about that you didn't get to talk about? Anything that you want to say? I feel like there's always something I'd say. I feel good. Yeah. Nothing in in particular. I really. I'm surprised but grateful for how much you asked me to kind of go into detail about certain things that I think we got some interesting gems and special tidbits Mm. about my journey out of it. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody said once that a good interview should feel like therapy. (laughs) So maybe you feel like that a little bit. So the podcast is called Let It Out. We end in a way I, I think you'll enjoy and everyone listening does this with us. We'll inhale and then let out a sigh together. Okay. Okay. So inhale. (sighs) Always feels better. Hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. That was the episode with Sahar. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let me know. Comment on Instagram at me and at Sahar and let us know what you thought. But now it's time for LNL, the new segment I've been doing, also known as Likes and Learns, where I share with you something I've learned in the last week and something I have been liking in the last week. Let's start with likes because I think that's a bit shorter. And this has already been a long episode. I have been really liking this washi tape. Do you guys use it? It's just this colorful, fancy tape. It can be colorful or it can be more simple, but I've just been, I don't know. I like pasting things in my journal. I like pasting things up on my wall. A friend of mine used it at her wedding and then gave me the extra. And then I ordered some on Amazon, but you can get it at like an art store or like I said, Amazon, or I don't know, we'll pop some links in the show notes, but this is not sponsored, but open to it clearly because I love this tape. It's such a simple thing, but I'm like getting a lot of joy out of it weirdly. Okay. On to learns. So this week, I learned something that I really actually learned years ago, like 10 years ago. I have these two cousins who I idolized growing up. And one is eight years older than me and one is 10 years older than me. And when I was a kid, they were just the coolest people in the world. And turns out that they actually are. You sometimes don't know as a kid of what you think was cool and what actually was. But in this case, I lucked out they're actually really wonderful. I was raised on this adult farm of sorts. I was the only kid around. And so they were the closest thing to my age, even though they were a lot older than me. Anyway, when I was in college, I was heading to study abroad and really leaving home for the first time, which was important for me because I went to school very close to where I grew up. And it was just a big deal. And my best friend, who's my best friend to this day, who's done this podcast, Katie, she's here with me in New York. She really orchestrated us going to Spain, like helped me buy my ticket, helped me like do all these independent adult things that I really hadn't done before. And the night before the trip, I was feeling all this anxiety, just overwhelmed with a lot of the things I needed to do. And I'm a time optimist. So I 
it's a term I really enjoy, but basically I think I can get a lot more done in a certain amount of time than I can. And so this often makes me overwhelmed and anxious. It's actually happening right now, which is why I need to speed this story up. But the point is, Katie was coming over to my house to spend the night. And then my mom was going to take us to the airport for our study abroad the next morning. And I had this list that was like a mile long of things I needed to do and pack and people I wanted to see before I left. And just all these like errands and things that I thought were so important. And my cousin, Erin calls me right in the midst of this. She'd traveled a lot when she was younger and wanted to, you know, just like wish me well and, you know, say hello, whatever. So I answer the phone and she could sense that I was you know, I didn't know the word anxious at the time, but I was just, you know, going through it. I was a mess. And I told her all the things I needed to do and blah, blah, blah. And why I like couldn't have fun on the trip if I didn't get these done. But Katie was like about to be there. And so I was like stressed out. And she was like, look, the trip starts now. Katie's going to be here. As soon as your friend gets there, the trip starts now. That was her line to me. That was her advice. Like just you're here. You know, it was essentially like be present and don't miss this moment. That's a big deal and something that's exciting because you're like fumbling around about these crazy things you think you need to do. And I thought about that somewhat recently, like a couple months ago, my boyfriend was coming to town to visit and I thought his flight came in early. And I thought that I had a lot more time than I did before he got here. And so I was going to do a bunch of laundry and shower and make my bed. And like, I just, I don't know. I had all of these things that I thought were so important that I needed to do. But I thought of Aaron's words of the trip starts now of like, this is what it is. He's here now. And I can either be anxious and like fumble about, or I can just be like, oh, whatever. I didn't get the things done. Here I am. You know, the trip starts now. And it's funny. Like I actually recorded this once and it got deleted and I'm recording this again. And I'm just having one of those days where it's like, okay, well the trip starts now. And I don't know. I hope this is helpful to you or entertaining or useful in some way, but I've just been using that mantra in my life since I rethought about it a couple of weeks ago and thinking about Erin's advice that she probably doesn't even remember saying and didn't mean it to be this big profound thing. But maybe there's something in your life that someone said to you that just struck a chord and you maybe remember it years later. And I don't know, maybe it'll be this, but I hope it's helpful. And, and now whenever, you know, I'm something isn't as I want it to be. I think about this line of like, okay, the trip starts now. Or like, yeah, it's, I'm outside and I was going on a walk and now it's raining, but you know, I've got an umbrella. The trip starts now. Just, it's essentially like be where you are and be present. So I've got to go. Okay. I've time optimized right now, but if you're still listening right now, chances are you don't hate me. So you might want to sign up for my Let It Out letter. It's something I send out somewhat monthly. It's usually a personal essay from me and meanderings to links and articles and things I've watched or listened to around the internet that I want to share. So sign up for that if you want to. If you don't, that's cool. I'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast by supporting the sponsors and if you haven't yet but you like this leave a review on itunes that would be really cool it helps the show a ton and it just means a lot to me i've i read every single one of them the five stars and beyond (laughs) not beyond uh less than five stars i read those two but anyway just five stars preferably i love you thank you for listening next week on the podcast kelsey miller she 
is one of my favorite people. She wrote this great new book called I'll Be There For You, the one about friends. And it's a retrospective about the show Friends, which I just finished and I loved it so much. It was just such a delight to read and then to get to talk to her about the book and writing the book and the show Friends. And it was just one of my favorites. I can't wait for you to hear it. You'll hear all about that next week. And for now, I'll tell you the emoji. The emoji for this episode is, is there a tape emoji, like a scotch tape emoji? I'm not sure. Maybe in the office section. Let me know. If not, just use, let's just use the cassette tape. Yeah, the cassette tape. I think that will be good. I love you guys so much. I can't wait to talk to you next week. In the meantime, let's keep in touch on Instagram. At Katie Dalebow is uh, where I am. One more thing, if you're in New York City on December 2nd, it's a Sunday, I'm doing a workshop at the spring. It's a meditation place in Soho that I love so much. It's going to be journaling and meditation and snacks. My friend who has an Instagram called Feed Your Sister is making yummy treats for us, which that's why I'm going. So I would love to see you there. The link to that's in the show notes. And then over New Year's, I'll be at Kripalu leading a let it out sleepover. And I would love for you to come. Ayurvedic food, us remixing our resolutions, hanging out, being together. I think it'll just be a really cozy place to start the new year. And I would love, love, love for you to come. So link to all of that's in the show notes. I hope to see you guys in person really soon. Bye.